Hey, good morning. Uh, I appreciate you guys being here. A lot of people came down with the Final Four flu this morning and uh, went through a really a lot of emotions last night. Hey, I'm going to, and because of that, in light of that, I want to ask a favor if you would indulge me. And uh, so uh, a friend of Live Oak, someone who attends Live Oak uh, fairly frequently, um, is on the staff with the basketball team. And I was texting with him last night and just said, congratulations, praying for you. And and uh, I thought it'd be neat if, we, if I took a selfie with you guys doing the guns up to text to him. Would, would that be okay? Okay. If it's not, then do what you got to do. Like, like, that's fine. But if you're okay with that, I'm going to take one going this way and then one going that way. If you could just do the guns up, and, and that'd be great. I'd appreciate that. So can we do that? All right. You guys are on right now. Come on. I expected more from the front row right here. Thank you. There we go. Ready? One, two three. Okay. You guys ready? All right. Here we go. Yeah. Ready? Ready? One, two, and three. Very good. Thank you. I'll send that to him. Hey, we're in this series called Jonah, week three of a four-week series. Next week's the last week. And um, I don't know. I feel prompted to say this. Uh, I hope you weren't making any other gestures in there. Uh, those those who are the heathen among you or the longhorns among us, please, I hope you kept it clean and above board. Um, we're doing this series, Jonah. How many of you were familiar with the story of Jonah prior to this series here? Like, raise your hand. Like, most of us, a lot of us. And the problem is, when you're familiar with something in the Bible, um, you tend to just kind of skim over it. Like, I know the story. For me, I knew the story of Jonah really well. And it was probably maybe even the fourth or fifth time that I remembered hearing Jonah or reading Jonah, and it was really chapters three and four that got me, where I thought, man, I've never really had God use that like this in my life before. And the danger was when something's familiar in the Bible, you can tune it out or just kind of autopilot, just cruise through it. I know the takeaway. Just, I'm going to encourage you not to do that um, anytime when you're reading scripture, but especially with the story of Jonah. And I love the book of Jonah because God's used it in my life a lot. And one of the things that I think is just, it's really true for me is I want to be like Jesus, but I'm a lot like Jonah. I just am. And I can see how God's changing me, but still, I've got a lot of Jonah in me. And the question we've been asking in this series is where is God asking you to go or what is God asking you to do where you might be tempted to go the other way? And if you ever have a sense of what that is, you just beware of the fact that we are other way people. It's just kind of in us. That there are times we should go this way and we go that way. With our thoughts, with our choices, with our finances, with our relationships, with a lot of things. When God asks us to do something that's out of our comfort zone or even something we have an issue with, because Jonah's asked to do something that he kind of has an issue with it. Like he... You'll see it when we get into chapter four. Like, he's like, what, God, what are you thinking? 
Like, sometimes we are other way people, and it's important to recognize that about us. If you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, this is kind of previously on Jonah. Like, here's what happened. So Jonah is asked to go and be a prophet of God, a messenger of God, to a group of people who were basically terrorists. They were awful. They did unthinkable things to people, skinned people alive. Mark talked about, some, he did some research on it, and like, they would cut off people's eyelids and put them on a stake facing the sun so they couldn't blink and their eyes would become raisins. They would do awful things, you know, like heads on spikes as trophies and just terrible things. And so when God tells Jonah, hey, I want you to go to them, one, he's probably scared of what will happen to him, but he's also scared of the fact that God might forgive them. He's like, you want me to go this way? I'll go this way, as far as I can that way. And he does. And God sends a storm, and the sailors are going, why is it storming? This doesn't make sense. Someone must have done something. And Jonah's like, my bad. Yeah, it was me. And you should probably throw me overboard. And they're like, no, we don't want to do that. He goes, no, you really need to do this. This is totally my fault. So they throw him over, and God provides Jonah this fish to swallow him up. And at that point, some people are like, man, I don't know. That sounds more like Pinocchio than the Bible. Hey, that's fine. Wrestle with that. But like four people who are contributors to Scripture thought Jonah was a real guy. And it was a real story. And also Jesus kind of alluded to that. He thought it was a real guy. But if you're, if you're wrestling with, I don't know if Jonah happened or not, just stick with it. Stick with it. Because after it happens, God kind of provides the fish. He's in there. And he repents, and he's like, I'm, I'm just, you know, pours out his heart to God. I'm at the depths. I'm in despair. And he kind of has this idea where he's now open to whatever God wants. So that's where we left off last week in Jonah 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And this is the point I made last week. There are two ways out, right? I mean, we don't like to think about it, but like he could, you know, forward exit or rear. And, and, and he... God, through his grace, says, why don't we have the sick, have a, the, the fish get a little bellyache and vomit you up versus other options. And, and so he, he, there's two ways out. But really, there's, there's two ways out. Like he can, at various points in the story, it's either life or death for Jonah. It's either sink or swim, literally. And at one point, he really thought choosing to go to Nineveh might be de- choosing death. He's got all kinds of issues going on, but his big issue was, I can say yes to what God wants me to do, or I could say yes to what I want to do. And I do not want to forgive them. I don't want God to forgive them. But he says yes. There's, and, and, and this happens on to dry land. It wasn't at, you've arrived at your destination. Like, like he still had to get out his little uh, GPS thing and say, okay, now where do I go to Nineveh? Oh, it's 100 miles this way. So he's got to go and make his journey. to he, he still has a fork in the road where I can go this way, away from it, or that way toward it. And he chooses to go toward it. And that's where the story picks up now. Um, and, and one of the things about Jonah as this is happening, just remember, Jonah is a book that asks questions. It's wanting you to ask questions. The question throughout the story is, what's Jonah going to do next? And also, what's God going to do next? But the big question for Jonah is, what are you going to do next? And that's always the question when you're reading Scripture. What does God want you to do next? So that's where it picks up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. I give you. The message I give you. Not your message, Jonah. My message. 
Now, when it says great city of Nineveh, it's not like, man, Nineveh's a great city. It was a bad city. Great is in terms of size and power in the world. It was a big city. And Jonah is asked to go there. And what I love is the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God is a God of second chances. He doesn't give up on us, but we give up on him. God never gives up on us, but we give up on him. And God's grace and mercy show up in Jonas's life. He does not give up on him. And this is good news for me because, again, I'm a lot like Jonah at times. That's been my experience. We have a disposition to be other way people. So Jonah goes and gives a very short but simple message to the Ninevites. He says yes to do what God wants. His message is very short, five Hebrew words, eight English words. It's not like he's really begging and pleading, trying to win them this idea of uh, repenting and experiencing God's forgiveness. Here's what happens. And there's a key word in this passage. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. So he's going around for three days giving this message. Jonah began going a day, by going a day's journey into the city. So it takes a full day just to get into the city. And here's his message proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Really, that's all you got, Jonah? Not like, hey, there's a God and you're not him, and, but he loves you, but you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. But if you turn around, even God might forgive you, even you. No, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Huh. And then he walks to the next people. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's not exactly what all that the message I think God had for him. I mean, there's no mention of God, no mention of their sin, no idea of repenting. And this key word here, though, is Jonah did this. He obeyed. He didn't do it especially well, but he obeyed. Like, like that's a key word for Jonah. It's a key word for us. It's a key word for, for Jesus, because like when he told us what a disciple of Jesus looks like, he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Obedience is a big deal in our story. It matters to God. And it mattered here, but here's one of the great things about obedience. Obedience, when you don't feel like it, is still obedience. Jonah didn't feel like it. And you see that more and more as it goes on. He did not, he he wasn't feeling it. He's not like, God, I get what you're doing here. All right, I'll go. He went and he did not want to. And he gives him this message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that actually is the key word. Go to the next, yeah. Overthrown. I think Jonah misunderstood what that meant. And there's a good reason. It's this Hebrew word, hafak. There's no test. You don't need to know that. But here's what you need to know about that word. It's used multiple times in the Bible, multiple ways. And depending how you think what that word means could really make a difference in how people hear it and how Jonah thinks about what it means. And I think Jonah was very disappointed that it meant one and not the other. See, one meaning of the word, it's used elsewhere. Lot is fleeing from the city and God says, man, people are so bad here, I've got to wipe them out. Like, like there is no hope left in the city. He goes, well, what if, and, and, and he and his, his, his buddy's like, well, what if you find this many? Will you save it? Yeah, sure. But there's not that many in there. Finally, he's running away and he goes, can I go to this town of, of Zoar? 
Like, is it going to be in big trouble too? Are there bad? He goes, no, you'll be safe if you go there. And he pleads for this city. And it says this in Genesis 19. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request to you to spare this, this city. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. I will not reduce them to rubble. I will not unload on them. I will not overthrow them. They will not be wiped out. That's what Jonah thought. 40 more days and Nineveh will be wiped out. Here's the other way it's used. This is Samuel the prophet anointing King Saul, the king of Israel. Samuel's talking to Saul. The spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. It's the exact same word. You will be overturned. You will be overthrown. But it doesn't mean wiped out. It means transformed. So now hear the message to Nineveh that way. 40 more days and Nineveh will be transformed. It'll be Nineveh 2.0. It'll be a new and improved Nineveh that's not the people that cut off eyelids and put people's head on spikes. God is gonna change you. And Nineveh hears one thing and Jonah thinks it's the other and he goes, I can't wait for this. He thought it meant that. Is it overthrown, changed, or is it overthrown, destroyed? And the key question for us is what does God want to overthrow in me? What does he want to change and transform? But that imagery of an overthrow, like it's a city that's going to be overthrown in a battle, is appropriate imagery too because it's a battle for who is going to be at the center of your life, you or Jesus. It's a battle. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 6. For we know that our old self, who we are apart from Christ, was crucified with him so that the body ruled, again, who's in charge of your life, you or him, ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin for all of us once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Goes on to say this in verse 11. In the same way, this is what it means for you. That's what it meant for him. It's it's what it means for you. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, and he asked the question, who is going to be in charge in your life? Do not let sin reign or be in charge of your mortal body so that you obey. Again, it's a key word in our life as a disciple of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, because that's what Jesus has done for you. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master. It's not in charge anymore, because you are not under law, You're under grace, the grace that God has shown you. So you can take that and say, well, okay, well, now that I've got grace, man, let's 
Let's go all in on just doing whatever we want in life. No, this is about of who's in charge of your life. And he goes on to say this, and Paul kind of gets on our heads a little bit. He goes, I know what you're thinking. What then? Shall we sin? Uh, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the, of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Again, who is in charge of your life? Who is calling the shots? You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. The key idea is never be mastered by anything except Jesus. Because whatever you respond to will be in charge of you. So that's why Jesus says it's not out of arrogance that Jesus wants to sit on the throne of your life. It's out of grace of saying, if I don't lead you, it leads you to a bad place in this life and the next. Trust me enough to trust everything to me. Never be mastered by anything except Jesus. But the problem is that process. Now, I've had some friends and I've known some people that immediately when Jesus entered their life, they were night and day difference that day. For me, I want to be a lot like Jesus. I'm still a lot like Jonah. It's more process with me. But I can see changes. But it is a process. And one of the reasons I think it's a process is we are very resistant to that change in our lives and giving up that control. Here's how Paul said it. Again, the question out of all this is, what does God want to overthrow in me? You've got to figure out where is it that I'm trying to hold on to control and be in charge in my life and not trust him with that. But it's a process. Philippians 1.6 says this, being confident of this, you can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a process. And God will not give up on the process, though we might give up on it. God does not. And the guy who writes this is the Apostle Paul, who started out as antagonistic, anti-church, anti-Jesus, wanted to put them to death and put them in jail and stop the Jesus movement. He didn't think it was for real. And then one day, as he's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest, imprison, and possibly put to death some people because they were followers of Jesus, Jesus shows up and literally knocks him off his mule and says, why are you persecuting me? Me? No, I'm persecuting them. No, you're not. Because I'm in charge of their lives. You're persecuting me. And Paul, who is then called Saul, responds to Jesus, and now he becomes an advocate of Jesus, and he is the one who primarily God used to build the church around the Mediterranean in the Roman Empire. And if you're just flipping through the book of Acts, that all happens with a turn of the page, but it was multiple years, almost a decade, of Paul trying to get grounded in this new understanding that everything he had learned in the Old Testament, what it means now that Jesus is here. And so he said, I need to I need to understand this. It was a process of changing not just his beliefs, but changing him. And what what Paul said is, Jesus has, I'm confident of this, that Jesus started a good work, an overthrow in me, and he's not giving up. He went on and told the church in Rome this, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because he's merciful to us, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When you do that, you offer your life as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, be overthrown by the renewing of your mind. And when that happens, and the further you get into the process, you know this is true if you've been overthrown and God's been transforming you in life, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his plan for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's will, his plan becomes clear the more he overthrows me and I look less like me and more like him with how I think, what I follow, and how I live. The question you have to ask is what does God want to overthrow in me? It's an act of surrender. And it might be in your financial world. What does God want to overthrow in me and how I handle my possessions and my finances? What does God want to overthrow in me and how are my relationships, in my family, in my dating, in my friendship, with, with my enemies? What does God want to overthrow with me in me about my forgiveness or lack of it to the life of others? That's what God was working on with Jonah about. And we'll talk about it more next week. He wanted to overthrow something about his wanting forgiveness for himself, but not for others. The selfish nature. What is it that God wants to overthrow in you? And, and, and so he gives this message, thinking it means he's going to destroy him. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Instead, it means 40 days and Nineveh will be transformed. And the unthinkable happens. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. And Jonah's like, I knew this would happen. No, no, no. Are you sure you want to follow God? No, are you sure? Like, you you can picture him kind of going, I can't believe this is happening. But that Ninevites actually model for us the idea of what surrender looks like. And it's interesting to compare. Like, the person who should model for stuff for us in this should be Jonah. The Ninevites are actually the best role models in this. The king was actually a better role model than Jonah. Jonah was a terrible prophet. But here's what, here's what happens. He gives his half-hearted message, 40 days, you guys are gonna be toast. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, we believe God. And if you wanna surrender, if you wanna know what surrender looks like, that's the first thing that happens. Oh, go back one. They believed God. They believed. And that's not just believing God is who he says he is. They did not get a lot of information from Jonah that we can tell to put together a theology of this is who God is. They just said, there must be a God and we need to seek him. They believed. And belief is not just knowing the facts. We talked about that last week. Belief is knowing the facts enough and having faith enough to do what he says. But The first thing they did, first surrender move, it starts with belief. And then verse 6, we see surrender move too. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, I mean, at this point, I bet Jonah would hope, at this point, he's going to say, no, we're Ninevites. This is how we live. We're not going to change this. We're people of power. And we have power because we're powerfully bad. We're not changing. Instead, the Nineveh king does this. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. That's surrender move two. 
You get off the throne. I'm not in charge of my life anymore. There is a God, and it's not me. It requires humility. It requires repentance. It requires relinquishing power and control of your life. Now, this is odd behavior, right? Like, he got off his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Well, that's weird behavior, right? That just, like, I don't ever do that when I'm saying I'm sorry. In fact, actually, in our house, we have rules for how you say you're sorry. Because with two kids and us, that sometimes we say sorry. You know how it goes. You say you're sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, Doug, you shouldn't speak to, to your kids that way. And I'm like, okay, okay. So we've had to kind of walk through the, the standard operating procedures of sorry. One is you say you're sorry, right? Two is you say what you're sorry for. I'm sorry because I did this. Third, and this is where we usually miss it, we sound like we're sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're so stupid you didn't understand what I was saying, you know. And I'm like, no, no, Doug, don't talk to the kids that way. Just come on, calm down. All right. And then, this is the fourth one. If you're really sorry, say what you're, you're sorry. Say what you're sorry for. Sound like you're sorry. And the best way to really be sorry is not to do it anymore. Do it differently. Don't speak to them that way anymore. Don't respond that way anymore. And that's all odd behavior, but that's how they did sorry. That was the rules for sorry, not the board game, but the rules of an apology of, hey, I own it, I'm sorry, I'm going a different direction. That's how they did it. And the king models this for these, his people. He got off his throne and said, and here's the thing, if you're a leader of anything, and more of you are leaders than you think, everyone has influence. And if you lead a family, if you even have leadership in a friendship, if you lead a class, if you lead a school, if you lead a business, if you lead a department, if you lead anything, we learn this in Jonah 1, that his bad choices affected everybody in the boat. The king shows us the opposite is true. Good choices affect everybody around. Our choices have ripples. You have influence. And the king's influence of we're going to say we're sorry here, he influences a whole nation. He models something for us as leaders. And he doesn't just sit down in the dust and put on his sackcloth. He says, y'all are doing it too to the whole nation. He issues this decree in verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. Y'all dress like I'm dressing. Go change your clothes and put on your sackcloth. Again, don't go put on sackcloth today. That's how they did sorry. That's different. That was part of their grieving process of, man, we were really wrong on this. And he said, basically, put on your sorry britches. Own it. And I love it. It's like, like he's getting on to the animals. That dog that chewed that thing up, he needs to be sorry too. Like, he's probably got some unruly pets that he's really got some baggage about. But he says, I want everybody that we can influence to take a posture of saying we're sorry. Say we're sorry, say what we're sorry for, sound like we're sorry, and do life differently. 
And here's surrender move, move three. They did something differently. Surrender move three is to set aside your personal desires. Let them give, give up their evil ways and their violence. This was who they were. This was their identity. We're Ninevites. We want to scare the Jonas of the world because it keeps them in line. But it's not just evil desires. It's, hey, let's give up even the stuff that, like eating and drinking. Let's do anything right now that's about us so we can focus on God. Surrender move three is you give up you and what you desire. And then there's surrender move four. They called out for mercy. We call out for mercy. Let everyone call urgently on God. For God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What they do really well that sometimes you and I don't do, they didn't negotiate. We will give up our violence if you will relent. Deal? No. They just said, we're going to do this, and maybe he will. God may. God may not. They didn't know. Jonah wasn't doing them a lot of favors at this point. He's not hoping for them to turn it around. But they turn it around. Verse 10, when God, God saw that they did this, saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, say you're sorry, say what you're sorry for, sound like you're sorry, like they're following our sorry rules in our house. Our sorry rules, it sounds funny. You can follow your sorry rules. It all depends on inflection, right? Overturned, overturned. And by the way, overturned doesn't mean cars on Broadway. Let's just get that out there. Here's a key word. They turned. They did life differently. They repented. They turned from their evil ways. And then God has a change of direction. I don't need to overthrow them and release them to rubble. I get to transform them. And they experience a God of a second chance, just like Jonah did. And did not bring on the destruction that he had threatened. And there's this amazing response from these terrible people. They turned. And they said, let's turn and seek God. And they find what anyone finds is you can never be too far from God that when you don't pivot and turn toward him, he's right there with grace and mercy. They turned and were face to face with a compassionate God. And Jonah was very effective as a prophet. But he was a bad prophet. But most prophets who would go to talk to people, they'd say, hey, God's got something to tell you. It's not good news. You're heading in the wrong direction. You need to turn around. That's what God says. And usually people are like, we don't want to listen to you. No. Jonah's hoping they say that. And they, he has this amazing response rate. If you just measure the response rate of people in terms of all the prophets of the Bible, Jonah's up there. He got a good return rate. But he didn't want it. Like, he's a bad prophet, and this is good news for me. God uses even bad prophets. Because for most of us, I want to be like Jesus, but I'm a lot like Jonah. But God can still use you. But a lot of times, what God is using you to do in the life of others, where he asks you to step out and do something, say something, be something, and it's hard. It's not just about the influence on others. Usually, he wants to overturn something in you and transform you. He's one of the most effective prophets if you gauge just by response rate, but he was a terrible prophet. And you see that in the first verse of chapter four we'll look at next week. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Jonah's getting angry. He did not like this. 
He's like, I knew it. God, I knew it. He's a terrible prophet. But the people still responded. But God wasn't done working yet because it wasn't just the people he was trying to overthrow, trying to transform. It was, it was Jonah. You know, I don't know if you believe Jonah was a real guy. I don't know if you believe there really was a fish. There really was a Nineveh. History tells us that. Like, we know that. But I don't know if you know, believe all this stuff happened the way it did. I do. Like I said, I, I mean, I do because... Four different authors of scripture over 800 years said, they refer to Jonah as a historical event. And Jesus does as well. As a matter of fact, Jesus kind of goes and says, hey, as it was in the days of Jonah, like those guys repented. If the Ninevites could be here to tell you guys you need to repent, like would that do something for you? Would that move the needle? He says, and just like Jonah was the sign of Jonah, he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So I'm gonna be in the grave three days and three nights. So you'll know that I am who I say I am. And then he has this line, and he says, one who is greater, uh, what we, one is here who is greater than Jonah. He's talking about himself. And I, I, I mean, I'd love to try and convince you that Jonah really happened, but that, to me, that's not the core issue. The core question you need to really ask is, do I believe Jesus really happened? Do I believe he lived? Do I believe he died? Do I believe he rose again? Because on that hinges everything else. That, that's really the question. And he is greater than Jonah. He is greater than fill in the blank anybody. He is the point of human history and he wants to be the center point of your history and transform your life to make you more like him as you follow him. And when you do experience his grace, the core issue, even in Old Testament books like Jonah, it's always about Jesus. And what will we do with him? And what does it look like for me to respond to him? And sometimes we say, you want me to do what? In terms of responding to him? Where are you tempted to go another way when it comes to the person of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you and what he asks of you? That's the core issue for you to wrestle with. Uh, let's stand for closing prayer. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday. We're leading up to Easter. And what I love is we, we look at, at something Jonah wrestles with that has direct implications of how we think about the last week and the life, death, and then the ultimately what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus a great question to wrestle with on Palm Sunday. I encourage you to be here. And I also encourage you that maybe there's somebody that needs an invite card and you might be tempted to say, I don't want to do that because then I become that guy or that girl and I don't want to do that. I just want to remind you that sometimes when God asking us to do that, isn't it about just inviting somebody else and helping them connect to Jesus or to a group of people that follow Jesus? Sometimes it's about what God wants to do in you and use you in that process and overturn in you. So making an invite isn't just about the other person. Sometimes it's about you and God and just doing what he says, and experiencing something as you step out of your comfort zone. And I want to challenge you to be thinking about, especially as we approach this Easter series called Living Hope, we'll do for four weeks, who do you know that needs hope right now? For me, it's a long list of people. And I want to make sure I do everything I can to connect them to the living hope. And that's a tough calling sometimes. But people in hope, needing hope, are very open to those kind of invitations. So be praying and thinking about who do I know that he needs hope that I could invite? God, thanks that you love us enough to show us um, even a bad example and how you can use even a life that would drag their heels the whole way of being obedient to you and how you transformed a city. And God, I pray you would transform us to be more like you and help us know the answer to that question, what is it that God wants to overthrow in me? 
And God, I admit that I fight you on some things. And I pray I do become more like Jesus and less like Jonah, but today I'm a lot more like Jonah than I want. So I pray for all of us this week, we would say yes to what you want us to do. And in that process, you would use us in the lives of others and transform us to be more like you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. If you'd like to talk, I'll be down at the front.